Tommy Ross serves as Senior Director, Policy with BSA, the Software Alliance. In this role, he works with BSA members to develop and advance global policy positions on a range of key issues, with a focus on cybersecurity, privacy, and market access barriers. Tommy is one of the coordinators slash collaborators on the BSA Framework for Secure Software. This document caught our attention when it came out a few months ago, as it is a reliable representation of all the pieces an organization needs for software security. Tommy shares with us some of the background stories on how this document came to be, and also walks through the various pieces contained within. We hope you enjoy. I want to take a moment to introduce you to Security Journey. At Security Journey, we believe security is every developer's job. We work with our customers to help them build long-term, sustainable security culture amongst all their developers. Our approach is to provide security education that is conversational, quick, hands-on, and fun. We don't do lectures. Instead, we let the experts talk about what's important. The modules are quick, 10 to 20 minutes in length. We believe in hands-on experiments, builder and breaker style, that allow developers to put what they learned into action. And lastly, fun. Training doesn't have to be boring. We make it engaging and fun for the developers. Visit www.securityjourney.com to sign up for a free trial of the Security Dojo. The Application Security Podcast. Here we go. Hey folks, welcome to the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo, one of the co-hosts here, and I'm also the CEO of Security Journey. And I'm joined today by Tommy Ross from the BSA. And Tommy, we always start this podcast, our listeners know this already, but we always start with a person's security origin story. So if there was a comic book that described the way you got into security, what would episode one look like? Oh, well, episode one would be um, a little ways away from security because I started out as a lowly letter writer on Capitol Hill answering questions from constituents about um, national security issues that were going on in the world. Um, Really, at the time, mainly about the war in Iraq. I wrote thousands and thousands of letters on the war in Iraq. Um, So it was a long journey to get from there into cybersecurity, but uh, I worked on Capitol Hill for about 12 or 15 years and um, eventually worked for the majority leader of the Senate during the time when Congress was considering comprehensive cybersecurity legislation. And so spent about five years focused on trying to understand how the government could best put in place tools to um, shape cybersecurity across the, the industry and to defend government and critical infrastructure systems against uh, malicious cyber activity. We kind of failed <laughs> dramatically in our effort to pass comprehensive cybersecurity legislation, but it, it laid the groundwork for a lot of the legislation that's on the books today and, and really got me into cybersecurity and put me um, on my current career path. And, and that, that ultimately led you to the BSA, which we'll get into that here in a second. But I just want to fill our listeners in a little bit on and how we got here. So um, BSA put out a 
release, press release about this new document that was coming out that was going to focus on software security. And one of our other guests, Adam Shostak, uh, who's a very well known in the world of threat modeling, uh, we were talking to him and he said, hey, I'd listen to an episode if you talked about that new document that came out. And so here we are. So um, thanks, thanks, Adam, for, uh, you know, for, for volunteering to listen if we uh, went ahead and did the interview here. So, Tommy, I think it'd be good for our listeners to understand, first of all, what is BSA? Because to be honest with you, I'd never heard of it before this document came out. And so I'm curious kind of what is BSA? What's it there for? Sure. Well, back on my sort of origin story, I should clarify, you know, I'm a, I'm a policy guy, not a technical guy. And I think that's sort of the space where BSA lives. We're an industry association representing most of the leading enterprise software companies, um, the, the, the traditional software companies that everyone's heard of, like Microsoft and Oracle and IBM and Apple, but also born in the cloud companies like Salesforce and Splunk. Um, and Workday that, that are bringing a, a new type of, of software product and a new type of, of software development in a lot of cases to the, to the market. Um, so we have, a, we have a pretty broad array of, of leading software development organizations. Um, and the BSA, as an industry association, represents their equities in, in the government space around the world, so in front of both legislative organizations and executive branches in the United States, um, in Europe, in Asia, and, and around the world. So cybersecurity is just a subset then of what BSA focuses on. There's a number of different categories I saw on the website of, of different kind of areas that result in software, but cybersecurity just happens to be one of them. It's one of them. It's it's one of our priorities. I mean, we, we do work in a number of different areas, but I think what we've seen over the last uh, four or five years is that cybersecurity has come to the forefront in a way that has elevated it as a priority among our member companies and therefore made it one of the, the chief areas of focus for BSA. Great. And so that takes us then to the BSA framework for secure software. And so I thought it'd be good to for those that may not even know that this thing exists at this point, it'd be great to just get a definition of what is this document called the framework for secure software? Sure. Well, maybe I can sort of start out by talking about why we did it, and that'll give you a sense for how it developed in, into the tool yeah. that, that that we envisioned. Um, we have seen a gap for some time in in the um, policy space around software security, and, and not just the policy space. I mean, it, it, it affects developers as well, and it, it affects stakeholders across the ecosystem when it comes to software security. There really has not been a defined benchmark for assessing uh, or discussing security outcomes um, related to software security. And so our members set out to fill that gap, and many of them had had a lot of positive experiences over the past several years with the NIST cybersecurity framework, which is really more focused on uh, networks and, and defending critical infrastructure networks in particular. Um, but they, they had had a positive experience with that. They liked the way that it is uh, flexible and outcome focused so that it allows for software developers to look at a lot of different technical approaches consistent with a with a specific and, and measurable outcome. Um, and and so we set out with that as a model. What we were trying to achieve was was a tool that like that NIST framework 
can be used to help organizations understand and assess their own security practices, but then help outside stakeholders, including policymakers and customers, uh, understand and assess security outcomes associated with the software. Um, and so we, we did follow the NIST model where we had uh, a framework approach that's, as I said, flexible, risk-based, um, adaptable to different technologies, different development environments, different coding languages. Um, and then it, it follows the framework model. So there are functions, categories, and subcategories uh, we we also adopted NIST's um, uh, mapping to relevant standards and informative resources, but then we added a little bit additional detail because with software development, the details are really important, and we wanted to get sort of down to the next level beyond where uh, the NIST cybersecurity framework had gone. So we incorporated something called a diagnostic statement, which is really intended to be a specific measurable statement um, and then we also added a comment uh, a column on comments on implementation one of the chief challenges that we faced when it came to this framework was that there are so many different kinds of software so many different methodologies used whether it's different development models or uh, different coding languages um, different update um, uh, timelines, all that kind of stuff. And so even um, where we wanted to be as specific as possible, we also wanted to be as universal as possible. And so in some cases, we needed um, to, to further elaborate on how diagnostic statements might apply to certain development methodologies where the application isn't obvious. So that's kind of a, a general overview of the of the framework. Um, and as I said, it, it is a tool, uh, or what we intend is that it is a tool to help guide developers and then to help uh, stakeholders across the ecosystem have smart conversations about the level of security associated with individual software products and services, um, including within the organizations and then with with external stakeholders like policymakers and 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 customers and also suppliers. Yeah, I think it's it's great that you've stuck to the NIST CSF model. I've been a big fan of NIST CSF since it came out, just because I think it's so easy to understand. It's not like a giant thousand page document that you're lost in very quickly because it's got so much detail. And so, yeah, as I was going through the software security framework here in, in preparation for this conversation, I, I, uh, I thought, yeah, this is, I like how this is kind of lined up and now I'm realizing it's because you took that, <laughs> that same approach as NIST CSF. So it's great to take things like that and, and carry them forward. Uh, so who is this actually for then? Who is the who's the, I mean, you know, you mentioned policy folks, you mentioned some other ones, but when, when who is the target audience for this document? Yeah, I mean, that was, of course, a question that we, we was at the top of our minds as we were developing this. And, and I think um, we, didn't, we didn't believe that there is one target audience. We believe that there's a handful of them. For software developers, we see this as a document around which a secure development lifecycle can be built um, or can be assessed if it's already in place. Um, we, we, it does 
link back to best practice literature on the secure development lifecycle um, from a variety of different sources. And so it's a, it's a resource for developers to think through logically how to build or how to improve the development process for their software. It's also internally for organizations a way to enable folks outside the software development team to um, understand and talk about security, whether it's uh, security teams that are that that need to be looking at um, software as it's coming out of the development teams, depending on how the organization is structured, or whether it's, for example, uh, lawyers or government affairs representatives who need to be able to make representations about the security of the software before the audiences that they're dealing with. Um, so the software development organizations themselves are one important audience. Um, I think a, a second important audience, and, and really one that drove a lot of our um, a lot of our motivation for producing this, was the policymaker audience. What we've seen is that around the world there are a number of different governments that are looking at ways to um, build confidence in the security profiles of the software that is being procured by the governments and that is going out into the marketplace in IoT devices and in other forms. Um, so policymakers was certainly a, a second big big audience. And then the third is that you know as, as we went through this process, we heard from a no number of the software organizations that we spoke with that they are increasingly confronted with um, customers that are really concerned about the, the security associated with the products or services they're thinking about buying, um, but don't have good ways to talk to the companies about it. So they'll submit questionnaires that might be up to 100 pages long and might have some good questions in there, but also might have a lot of stuff that's just not relevant. And so the what happens is the security teams instead of really pouring all of their resources into security, spend a lot of time answering these, these questionnaires and it, it sort of lengthens the sales cycle and that kind of thing. And so um, what we had hoped is that this tool would provide customers a way to have more sophisticated, um, targeted conversations with their suppliers in a way that would improve their confidence in the products or services, but also shorten the sales cycles and simplify the, the, the conversations. Yeah, as somebody who's been on kind of both sides of that last one, the customer requirements, uh, definitely every time, it seems like every time we get one of those, it's slightly different. Like yeah. like 80% of the questions are the same, but they're not worded the same way. And so I think you're, you're right on there that there's really a need for, if we got to the point where even where the software security framework here was what folks were referencing, it would at least give us that common vocabulary and common set of questions versus we always have to interpret what the question is to try and figure out what's the answer that somebody's actually looking for. Yeah, that's absolutely our goal. So I, I see a couple of guiding principles that you've highlighted here for the document itself. And these really jumped out at me because I like to understand when I'm thinking about something like a framework, what was driving the decision process that you made. And so you listed risk-based, outcome-focused, flexible, adaptable, and aligned with internationally recognized standards. Tell us a little bit about why you chose those as the guiding principles. Well, I think that as we've looked at different efforts to try to uh, think about software security um, in different contexts around the world. We, we see these as areas that are common 
common pitfalls of those kinds of approaches. I mean, obviously, when you have rigid standards or rigid um, regulations around software, software evolves so quickly um, that that it, it, it those rigid uh, regulations can really inhibit. Um, software developers from pursuing those those innovations or you know pursuing that evolution, and so the there there needs to be something that is is flexible enough to allow for continuing evolution. But I think the important caveat is that it's it needs to be flexible but also meaningful from a security standpoint. Um, so that's that's why we have tried to be as as specific um, as we possibly can with the introduction of the the diagnostic statements. Risk space, obviously, um, that, that's a principle that we think is important to incorporate throughout the development lifecycle, and, and we've done that within the um, w- within the uh, framework itself. It, development of software really should begin beyond the idea for the software. Should begin with an assessment of of the potential risks or the potential threats. Um, the threat modeling, as as you brought up earlier, is a really crucial part, um, and and so many different parts of software devel- development build off that initial understanding of the risk landscape. Um, and so we've tried to build in a risk-based at- approach throughout the the framework. Um, outcome focus, very similar. Uh, we we think there are a lot of different technical approaches to get to common security outcomes. What should matter is not the specific technical approach. But the outcome, um, wh- whether we get to the the security control or the security capability that's important to address the threat that's been identified, um, and then we we do think that there is a need for uh, the framework to be universal, um, to be adaptable to different technologies, different development processes, different coding languages. That's been one of the big constraints on developing tools like this for software security in the past is that there's just so much variation across different um, development processes and different coding languages. Just to give you an example, um, we have we understand, well, many sort of traditional software developers will, will issue patches or updates on a regular schedule, um, you know, every Tuesday or once a quarter or that kind of thing. But with a lot of the DevOps-based or continuous integration, continuous delivery kind of methodologies, we see software platforms being updated a thousand times a day or even 10,000 times a day. And so we have to have, and and this is important both in terms of having a framework that, that can apply to both types of development processes, but also it goes back to the the evolution of, of software. You know, if you have a, a testing-based approach that tests software against, um, you know, a specific rigid set of, of standards or criteria, you can test that product in the morning, and by the time you go to bed, you're 10,000 versions behind. Yeah. Um, so you know, we 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 thought that that was that having something that worked across these different methodologies and was flexible enough to account for the speed at which software is is evolving was was really important. Finally, I think from from our members' perspective, you know, they they are working in in markets around the world, and what they see is that. It, Governments share a lot of the same challenges, but they often don't take common approaches to solving them. And when they don't, it creates um, market 
challenges. Uh, it create it, it it creates barriers for global companies to be able to deliver quality products consistently around the world. You know, if you have different standards that you have to build to, and you start having to build. Um, different products for different markets. It, it it divides your efforts as a company to to achieve and adhere to um, cons- consistent standards for security. So um, that that's a long-winded um, description of why those principles really are core to the framework. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the construction of this document because it is so. Uh, has so many different pieces to it. I'm really curious as to how you were able to decide what to actually include in this thing. And I'm envisioning a room with hundreds of hours of people yelling and arguing with each other to try and, because, you know, this is, some of these are controversial topics to some degree. And so how did, how did that process all work? How did this come together? Yeah. Well, there was a virtual room for sure. I mean, we, we went through several different drafts. We have the luxury of having, a number of members who really have been innovators in, in software security over the last several years. So you think about Microsoft really inventing the, the secure development lifecycle. Um, a number of our other members ha- have been major contributors to organizations like SafeCode, which uh, develops coding best practices or software development best practices. Um, they've been major contributors to, to standards development organizations and to best practice literature. So there's a lot of knowledge that we had to pull from, also a lot of differing opinions across these organizations and a lot of different um, different methodologies for developing software. So we, we got a diverse group that we could draw upon um, through our member companies. We also reached out to a lot of stakeholders beyond our membership, including the open source community, other non-BSA member um, companies, government stakeholders, uh, think tanks, nonprofit organizations, and so on. And we shared drafts and solicited input. I think we began by looking through what we identified as, as commonly used or widely recognized literature, including um, best practice literature, NIST publications, internationally recognized standards, um, OWASP, of course, the the common weakness enumerators um, that that we referenced throughout the the framework. Um, We looked at all these different documents and tried to identify the themes that seem to resonate across a number of different communities. Um, and, and really begin our, our construction of the framework by drawing on that best practice literature that was already there. We then worked through the, that content and tried to put it in a, in a logical progression and fill in the gaps where there were gaps. And we, there are gaps. I mean, if you look at the framework, you will see that for some of our diagnostic statements, th- there are not uh, informative references or relevant standards listed because there just isn't a whole lot of literature out there. And one, one of the areas that we think is really important um, where there's just not much best practice literature at all is around the end of life for software. Mm, yeah. uh, so, you know, we, we had to make it up. And we made it up based on our, our understanding of how uh, software is developed and responsible security practices. And then um, we vetted it against this diverse community of, of um, contributors that we had uh, access to. And as I said, went through several iterations, 
Um, and I think one thing I'd really like to highlight is we're still going through iterations. We've posted the framework on GitHub and have solicited comments there. Um, we, we are, we've made very clear um, from the outset that we intend this to be a living document and we're going to continue to update it as we receive more input. Uh, and we have received further input and we're already working to um, figure out how to, how to update the framework with that input. Great. And so now if we kind of once again switch gears and, and get into the actual document itself and the component pieces that we find here. And so just as I've been studying the document, I see that there's really kind of six different categories here. You've got functions, categories, subcategories, diagnostic statements, implementation notes, and informative references. And so starting with functions, functions are really just your high level your high level kind of really bit large buckets of different pieces? Yeah, I mean, the the purpose of using the framework model is that everything should proceed logically. And so what we tried to do is start with the big chunks that we, we wanted to think about when it comes to software development and put those uh, in, in the function um, <clears throat> In, in, we wanted to put them in as functions. And so the way we thought about this is that secure development, our first function, really covers everything from the inception of the idea for the software all the way until the product or service is deployed into the marketplace. So it, in, it includes coding, it includes um, testing and verification, it includes supply chain risk management, um, it includes the security and, and integrity of the development environment itself. Um, the last function, secure lifecycle, covers everything after the product or service is deployed into the marketplace. So traditionally, that's largely focused on vulnerability management. Uh, we've also included guidance on configuration and end of life. Um, and then the middle, the middle function is a little bit different. The middle function is on secure capabilities. And I would say the, the first and last functions are largely oriented towards processes that are used to produce and maintain secure software. The middle function is one that we think is particularly important because it is a set of security outcomes that we, sh we believe should be associated with a specific software product or service. So they are, they are characteristics of the software that comes out of the development process. The idea here is that it's not enough just to have a secure development lifecycle process in place. That process ought to yield outcomes that uh, reflect security characteristics in the software itself. And we ought to be able to look at the software product or service and assess it according to those characteristics um, as it goes out into the marketplace. Yeah, I kind of as I'm continuing to flip through the document here as we're as we're chatting, it almost seems like the secure capabilities section is more of the functional security functional requirements. I guess what we call them in the days of old, and then you, the, the life cycle and the secure development are more of the process or those things that would would tie closer to the actual secure development life cycle process. Exactly. Great. Well, let's um, let's jump right in and look at an example of one of these. I think it'd be nice to just walk across and talk through, you know, one of these categories that exist somewhere. So, I guess do you have a favorite 
one, Tommy? Um, one of the ones that we spent a lot of time looking at is supply chain risk management. Um, that is obviously a hot topic as people think about how to ensure the security of third-party components that are being integrated into the into the software. And there's a lot of conversation in, in Washington um, among policymakers, but then um, – in, in other governments and, and beyond government circles around how we can improve third-party component security. So that's that's a good one to look at, I think. All right. So that one sits in the secure development hierarchy, right? Are we looking at the category of supply chain? Exactly. Okay. And then if I look under, so the category is supply chain, the function is secure development. And if I look under the subcategory, I look at the first one, it says software development is informed by supply chain risk management. And then the diagnostic statement says an organizational supply chain management plan and processes for identification and reporting of supply chain incidents are established. And then you have those all important pointers in the relevant standards. So that's one of the things I love about NIST CSF. So I just love to see those relevant standards and, and resources and things uh, brought forward here. And there's lots of OWASP documents I see. There's lots of other things that, uh, that, that I see. So, um, so let, let's let's uh, as now that we've kind of explained this example in supply chain, how do you see somebody using this? Let's use this requirement and say, what what would my next step be after I kind of look at this? I've got I've I've said okay, this supply chain thing is important to me. How would somebody actually use this requirement? Well, I think it depends on the um, on who is using it. You know, if you're a if you're a developer, then this sort of lays out a series of, of responsibilities for um, understanding and managing the supply chain as, as you go through the process. So it begins, mo- most of our categories begin with something along the lines of the one you read, which that, that is that there needs to be some sort of overarching strategy or plan that identifies the key moving parts and puts in place processes and guidance for how to how to keep those moving parts moving in in the desired direction um so that that's sort of the overarching statement there in in the example you gave but then it gets in as you go through that category it gets into increasing detail about what specific um processes or safeguards or controls should be put in place um, to manage supply chain so if you look at the next one um, the cat, the subcategory is about ensuring visibility, traceability, and security of third-party components, and then it lays out three, or I'm sorry, four different specific responsibilities in in that respect. And so, for a developer, it says you you should um, as you're as you're working on your software development lifecycle or you're developing software within the guidance um, that you've put in place for your organization, it is reasonable to expect that you will be able to identify all the um, third-party components that you're integrating into your software and uh, that you're able to um, identify an inventory the subcomponents of those integrated components to the greatest extent feasible, recognizing that it's not always feasible to, to identify subcomponents that you yourself have not directly integrated. Um, so it sort of lays out you know, those and other responsibilities relating to um, visibility, traceability, and security, enabling the, the developer to sort of know what should 
what should be expected in that in that um, specific instance, and how to tool a software, um, a secure development lifecycle around it. A lot of those things can be done with automated tools, and so some of it is a, a matter of matching the automated tools to the the diagnostic statements. Um, but in other cases, there are organizational processes that need to be in place to account for them. If you're a policymaker, on the other hand, it lays out um, a series of security outcomes that you can look to to understand um, how confident you ought to be in the security of a, of a software product or service. And so if you're a policymaker looking at the same category, it gives you a set of questions to be able to ask software development organizations, hey, can you produce an inventory of the third-party components that have been integrated into this software? If so, um, you know that that that's useful information. If not, why not? Um, what's the risk associated with with the the lack of an inventory in that case, and so on? So it 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 provides um, some some kind of prompts for a, a more sophisticated conversation about the product or service. Yeah, and this is just an we just took an example from the supply chain area. I just want to make sure that folks know like even within secure development there are a series of other other categories that exist including secure coding, testing and verification, process and documentation, there's supply chain that we've been talking about, there's um, tool chain identity and access management. So there's a, there's a lot of different moving pieces of this document. And I really think it's worth folks that are involved either from the program side or even individual developers that have an interest in security. I think it's very worthwhile to take a look at this document and understand it because there's just a lot of good stuff. As somebody who's done this for a lot of years, I'm going through going, yep, I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I agree with that. I'm sure I can find something to argue with. But uh, <laughs> for the most part, I'm agreeing with what I'm seeing coming through here. And I love the, the way that it's it's been systematized into this this framework here. And so I guess the Million dollar question is where do people get this document from if they want to grab a copy? Well, our website bsa.org um, is the easiest place to go. Um, we we do have it posted on our website. We do have it uh, posted on GitHub as well, um, and uh, I'm sure we have it posted on various social media outlets as well. But the the, the BSA website is probably the easiest way to get it. Okay, and there's no uh, one of the things. Other things I love, just so our, my listeners know here, uh, I didn't have to put in any information or anything. I just went to the website, and there was a PDF available. So there's no uh, no hidden download. Put in all your information, and you don't have to do that. It's just available there. So, Tommy, what what would be your final takeaway then for our listeners to kind of summarize what we talked about, and maybe a, a an action, a call to action, or something that they can do coming out of this? Well, I think for me, what what I increasingly think about and what our companies increasingly think about is that software vulnerabilities are growing really rapidly and they are the one of the more common ways that malicious actors exploit um, networks and, and, and uh, devices and, and critical infrastructure in ways that are, uh, that are increasingly alarming. Um, we've seen an increase in supply chain attacks. We've, of course, seen the Internet of Things become a, a huge target of, of attacks. And a lot of it goes back to software vulnerabilities. Um, in, in 2017, for example, uh, 
77% of malware attacks exploited vulnerabilities in software that were already installed on, on the target system. So this is a huge challenge that we need to take on as a community. And I guess our message is that the BSA framework is a first-of-its-kind tool to allow organizations to have meaningful conversations about the security choices that are being made as products and services are being developed and to allow customers, policymakers, and software development organizations themselves achieve a level of confidence in, in the security profile of, of software. And that's a win for, for consumers, it's a win for enterprises, it's a win for governments. So we're really excited about the framework and are hoping to further engage with, with stakeholders, your listeners and others out there um, on how we can improve it and how we can um, make sure that it is widely used by software development organizations and others throughout the ecosystem. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. Our intro music is 8-Bit Kung Fu by Born and TJ. And our outro music is Southern Delight by Stefan Kartenberg. You'll find the show on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at www.securityjourney.com slash application dash security dash podcast. You can also find Chris on Twitter at EdgeRoute and Robert at Robert Hurlbut. Remember, security is a journey, not a destination.